Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lee Montgomery, Associate Professor of Experimental Art and Technology at the University of New Mexico. We will discuss his artwork and its intersection with the law. So welcome to the show, Lee. Uh, Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. Very excited to be here. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. It's really great to have you on. It was great seeing you in Albuquerque the other day. And and I got to say, you know, you were a huge inspiration to me in art school and your work always really stuck with me. So it was a, a real pleasure to reconnect with you. Oh, that's very sweet, Brian. I, and I will always remember when I first started grad school, that your cohort had uh, a show where you were to invite other people to present um, like from the new class and you chose my work. Um, And I was so at the very beginning of figuring out the, my, my three year grad school project. um, And it was so incredibly helpful to, to have that validation and that encouragement to just sort of get it moving. So I I will always remember that show. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm 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 thrilled to hear it. And so I wonder if you could start just by introducing listeners to yourself, what you do, what kind of work you pr- you produce, sort of like the career tra- tra- trajectory that you've you've had, because I think a lot of people are more familiar with the legal scholarship side of side of things, and maybe less familiar with the art making side of things. <laughs> it's true. Well, I guess when we met, I, I was start, I started grad school kind of late. I was about 27 when I decided to, to go to the San Francisco Art Institute. And, uh, and as a project for that over three years in, in the late nineties, uh, web boom, I did a project where I developed a personality that only existed as multiple personalities on a website and um, and would only talk about that person as someone I was working with to develop the work in critiques, which I think frustrated some, confounded others, and really excited the people that I wanted to excite. So it worked out pretty well. Um, and I, I stuck with that for a little while, but you know, the novelty of working on the web uh, was was fading a bit at a certain point. And I uh, actually did a stint at uh, KLX Radio in at UC Berkeley. It's also a community station where I did public affairs radio. And that eventually evolved into a real fascination with pirate radio. And um, and I sort of got back into the art making game after a while by doing an installation called Neighborhood Public Radio, which um, over the course of about 10 years, uh, a group of three of us primarily, but a, but a much larger group of, of other 
people who, who really kept it going as well. Like the, there were three core members that stuck together for about 10 years, but there were periods where there were as many as a dozen people who were all really active with this project, which was just about setting up a transmitter in a small community and doing a, a sort of very gentle critique of national public radio through a logo that was somewhat similar to theirs, but with, instead of national, it said neighborhood public radio. And the very first time we did it, it was, it was more my piece, I, I would say. Um, it was, uh, we sort of had this running audio, which I wish I could find. I would, I would give it to you for as a stinger or something. But it was, I recorded 24 hours of KQED in San, San Francisco and then just cut out everything that wasn't a sponsorship message. And over 24 hours, it, that, was, that amounted to about 15 minutes of audio. And and it was a lot of things repeated over and over again. Like Burger King was was one that came up a lot. A lot of the sponsorships were to get the traffic reports every morning. Like they had the big sponsors. Um, but it was it was re- it was also very centered on the idea that the idea of national public radio came about as an as a reaction to the over-commercialization of the airwaves and uh, of TV. And um, while the messages are a little more low-key, there is still a very strong sponsorship model in place for what is supposed to be a public resource. Um, And so that went well. We did it internationally. Uh, We got into the Whitney Biennial. Um, and I, I mean, it was an amazing experience to just see the impact of small scale radio in like different, like in Serbia, in Novi Sad, Serbia, we did one and had a situation where a local radio station owner came around to our broadcast angry because he was afraid we were going to break into his like spectrum. And so one of our hosts had to ride around the neighborhood with him to show that we weren't stepping on his frequency or whatever. But that's, they don't have an FCC in Novi Sad. So it's just dude shows up and tells you what has to happen. Um, so yeah, that was, that was some great work. And then, you know, that, that was 10 years, you know, and there were a lot of experiments with, uh, small scale transmitters doing, uh, you know, events were, you know, in the spirit of Max Newhouse and, and others. Um, and then I've been working on some solo projects since then that have involved uh, appropriating the Transformers movies or, or have involved uh, trying to use transgressive acts, transgressive acts, as the base for uh, aesthetic exploration. Um, like taking a camera into a movie theater or something like that. Um, and, and then I started working with drones, which also strangely has uh, definitely caused me to have to look at the intersection between technology and the law and, and, you know, registration. So I would say 
there are a lot of things that are that interest me that I like to talk about that involve intellectual property and appropriation and, and and that sort of thing. But also I I am very interested in the sort of gray areas of of legislation or control <laughs> um, as it relates to media and, and technology. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about your neighborhood uh, public radio project, because it seems to me that it, it touches on a bunch of really interesting areas of law, as you suggest, the sort of regulation of broadcast frequencies, right, which is kind of omnipresent and yet something I don't think that we are kind of socially generally as conscious maybe of as we were in the past, but also, you know, like trademark law and distinctiveness, you know, what kind of information you're communicating and, and why you're, why you're communicating it. But what, one thing that really always struck me about the project was the kind of balance of criticism and admiration. It was like, it wasn't a mean spirited project. It was about kind of like talk in a sense, like talking about why you cared about something. And, 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 and I guess the, the one thing that always kind of struck me was this transition from net art to radio art at the moment in which you did it is so anachronistic. And I kind of love that. And I want to know more about why that happened. I don't know that there was any conscious like network sympathy vibe that, that got me to uh, working with analog radio. I, I can say for certain that as early as high school, like I remember when I was a senior in high school, getting catalogs where you could purchase for not that much money, a a radio transmitter to set up like a college radio station. And so that was sort of a a goal of mine very early on. And and for various reasons, it didn't, didn't ever quite work out. Um, But it was always sort of in the back of my mind. And so I think it's more that radio was always there. And when, web stuff was starting to become more ubiquitous it meshed with that idea that was that was percolating in the back it was a real easy way for me as an individual to sort of broadcast ideas through html or you know i did explore the idea of streaming stations and and when we were doing the neighborhood public radio project there were a lot of people who thought that we should just be streaming all the time then we wouldn't have to worry about the, the signal. And my response to that at the time, and I think it was more relevant at the time than it is now, but it's still a thing now, was that to have the equipment to receive a stream in like the late 90s, early aughts, was to have a laptop or a computer. And if you just went to a thrift store and bought an FM radio, you could tune in to our frequency from the, from the transmitter. And so the, the streaming was not a, a good substitute for, um, 
for analog transmission at that time. I mean, now, I mean, with podcasts, whatever that is, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little different, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think I always had a love for, for the zeitgeist of, of analog transmission in radio. And so the, the, the web stuff was more a subset of that than, than the anachronistic transmitters being a subset of, of working on the web. I mean, I, I feel like that's not that uncommon among a lot of tech people who came to the internet at the sort of time that the both of us did really more, more you than me in the sense that it feels like the internet used to feel like a space of huge possibility. And mm -hmm. it maybe at least for a lot of people, doesn't necessarily feel exactly like that anymore. It kind of lost an aura of that. Am, am I, am I, am I totally off base with that or? No, no, no. I think in the, in the early nineties, I mean, before I went to grad school, part of what, why I came to it late is I worked in the tech boom of San Francisco from like 93 or 94 until 97, 98. And and so I was there watching as marketing departments were scrambling to find how to use the very basic HTML formatting that you could do at that time to, to advertise themselves. And, it, and, and I, I was able to see how it wasn't, it, it wasn't like a fascistic boot that came down and destroyed the internet. It was a gradual um, introduction by these conglomerates of more and more um, a combination of restriction and ease of use um, that got more people involved, but also, you know, like the fact that there was so much energy put towards encryption so that you could sell things on the internet. I feel like that was the, the first step to just destroying what the internet had been from the early nineties until I would say, you know, early two thousands when, when we really, you know, PayPal and, and other uh, storefront mechanisms became ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really struck me was that like a desire to consume anarchy and freedom is actually <laughs> considerably more unusual than we like to think it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I don't know. Could you, what do you mean by that? I want to make sure I'm responding. <laughs> well, I mean, like, well, it feels to me like what you're describing is, and this is something I've heard other people say as well. It's like, they look at the early internet and they're like, Oh, it was so free and open and you could do whatever you wanted to, but it, it wasn't like obvious to people how to use it. And for a lot of people, what they actually wanted it was for it to be less free and less anarchistic. And, and that, on some level, I think that's okay, but it's also something that got lost. Yeah. I mean, for me, that gets into a whole realm of ideas uh, that includes like right to repair and, other stuff it, it's like it's uh, yes there is this bill of goods we've been sold that i think that 
some things are too complicated for our fragile little minds to to figure out. And I feel like in at other times, things are deliberately made too complicated for our fragile little minds to to figure out. Um, you know, I used to do HTML and CSS all the time as just because it was fun to do. I stopped doing it for a few years. I would it would take me quite a while to get up to the speed that some people are on right now. Do I see that as being a problem with the technology? Mm, a little bit, but I also see it as being, you know, if you're committed to something, you, you know, invest the time and energy to learn how to use it. I think there is, I mean, when I saw the right to repair stuff that's coming up, out of the Biden administration right now, I was super excited that that the language is in there and that there's a lot of support for it right now. But I'm also I also started wondering: Is there now going to be a generation of farmers who used to who were really upset when they couldn't repair their tractors, who now have spent enough time having to rely on the company to do simple things for them, who just aren't going to know how to do the repairs now that they're allowed to welcome to America. (laughs) (laughs) So in, in light of that, like what was the reaction of NPR and other people in radio to your project? I mean, were they upset about what you were doing? If so, why were they upset? And how ultimately did they come to understand what you were up to? That's a complicated question because there's lots of layers to that. Like when we started out, um, one of our installations was at a gallery that was blocks away from KQED. And their engineer was like one of the most uh, uh, anti-piracy individuals in the world. And was just looking for us to, you know, the way that the FCC works is they're complaint driven. So somebody has to complain about you for them to even bother with you if you're broadcasting illegally. It's not even illegal. It's just, that's a whole other conversation, (laughs) as I understand it. But um, anyway, so, so we had certain times where we were potentially invited on to speak about our work on KQED and the engineer kind of vetoed it because it was, it was glorifying pirate radio. Um, later we had this, the grand success of doing a three month broadcast at uh, the Whitney museum in New York for the biennial that year in 2008. And uh, we did, we didn't get, any FCC complaints. We only got FCC complaints once in LA because we ap- accidentally stepped on a, a one of the NPR affiliates uh, uh, frequencies and forgot to turn the transmitter off overnight. And so it, it, it stepped on them during morning drive time. And so they called it in. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and it was actually a very, uh, the FCC were fine, um, but the NPR affiliate was obnoxious. Uh, and I, I won't mention who. But um, anyway, so so at, at the Whitney, though, um, 
that was our first big coming out on a national scale. And um, we had a lot of personalities and board members from NPR show up at the storefront. And I mean, without naming names other than Garrison Keeler, who just ignored us. Like he walked by, we tried to talk to him. He, uh, I'm not interested. Um, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I never liked that. Average. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but but there were other big names that you would recognize from the board who came in, and they would show up walking around the neighborhood in the middle of the e- evening and see this thing and come in. And it was clear at a certain point that they were being sent. It wasn't just casually dropping in. And they would say, what is going on here? Who's in charge? Who's doing this? And we would always respond with, well, nobody's in charge. We're just uh, inviting people to be on the radio. Would you like to be on the radio? Um, <laughs> you like, well, no, I'm on the radio. I, I don't, what are you, what's going on? I don't know. And pretty much to a one, they'd be there with a partner of some sort or, a, you know, somebody else on the board or whatever. And one of them would be just infuriated that we were doing this thing and that it was, it was stomping on their trademark. And the other would be like, honey, they're doing the same. This is the kind of stuff you love to do when you first got into radio. And then they just sort of not know what to do with that and kind of settle down. And, you know, in the best case, they would ask more questions and sort of really start to start to understand. Um, but the real disappointment was, it wasn't a huge disappointment, but we, we got a piece on Weekend Edition done by Karen Michelle. And somehow she managed to set up a situation where she asked one of the curators um, if what we did was art. And I think she was frustrated or something. And she just said, I don't know, you figure it out. And they, and sort of after a fairly, you know, reasonable expected take about like, how is this art, social practice, what, I don't know. Um, it ends with that comment and a sort of flag dismissal. Um, and you know what? At the time, it was kind of infuriating, like in the, like for the first, like, I don't know, 12 hours after they did it. But then I thought about it a little bit and I was just like, well, they didn't try to sue us. They didn't try to shut us down. They just dismissed us. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's something about it I kind of love too, because it, it sort of gets to a quality that I see in a lot of the work that you do in that it's like, it's pretty low key, but it's also pretty generous and like pretty open-minded and really looking to sort of talk about what you like, why you like it and what you want other people to see in it. And I wonder if you think that like, you know, some of the ideas you've talked about earlier, you know, like parody and appropriation and like, I mean, 
you know, we often think of those as being like critical modes of conversation, but can they be generous modes of conversation as well? Well, I mean, I think, I think pointing to the over commercialization of a public resource. Um, I, I don't see that as a harsh criticism. It's obvious that it's happening. And I would even argue that when it's first started to happen, there were large parts of the infrastructure that were against it. Um, I, I imagine there are a lot of people in the, in the NPR pantheon right now who just see it as the way things are done. Uh, you know, it's, it's been that way for so long, but I remember a time when the idea that there would be corporate sponsors mentioned on the hour on an NPR broadcast was just verboten. Like it, it just, that's why you listened to NPR. Even if you didn't really like classical music, which is what filled most of the time in between news broadcasts, you listen to it because there weren't going to be any commercials. And now they say they're not commercials, but you you can't listen to NPR without hearing the name of several corporate sponsors. So the, the, I, the Robert I, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, exactly. <laughs> Or the the Ray and whoever pro you know McDonald's, <laughs> come on. Um, but so so I don't I consider that generous. I consider that like I want it to be better. I want I, like I love and and when I was doing more like talking around the country about what we do did with Neighborhood Public Radio, I would often broad like play broadcasts from like the first year of NPR and they are beautiful. Like they would just grab a recorder and go out into the Capitol during anti-Vietnam war protests and interview everybody and just have these long open interviews where you just heard what people on the streets were thinking about this. And I, I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful. Um, and you know, I think professionalism, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of the amateur, <laughs> um, and I wish I wish NPR could could embrace the, their amateur instincts more. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that perspective informs the work you're doing now, and also the work that you do as an educator. Well, I'm very big on um, avoiding the use of of paid software, for instance. Um, I, you know, our, our university has uh, a, a free license as long as you're employed by them or a student for, for them to the Adobe cloud suite of applications. But I know that as soon as my undergrads in particular graduate, they aren't going to have access to that anymore. So I spend a fair amount of time teaching them how to code you know, with processing, which is open source, I introduce them to GIMP and uh, um, and and uh, Blender and Inkscape and 
you know, other open source versions of all the Adobe platforms. And I don't force anybody to use open source, but I feel like students need to come out knowing that, you know, the idea of paying for software is not the only way for software to exist and especially software. I feel like, I mean, I have a a controversial statement that I make sometimes that is that I learned how to use most of the commercial software by illegally downloading it at one point. And I feel like that's the way it should be. Like, sure, jack up the price for for big corporations that need to use your software or for institutions that need to, but give it to individuals for free because then they'll know how to use it when they go somewhere else. And I would totally support that. Totally. Um, so, uh, you know, that underpins a lot of, and I love your stuff about sort of being pro plagiarism, um, as a, as a stance, whether I a hundred percent support it or not. Um, I'm, I'm not against it. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, so like, you know, I, you know, some of my work involves like in the early days going into movie theaters with a camera and recording the entire movie. I'm not going to put it on a DVD and try and sell it at flea markets, but instead I'm going to use it as source material for appropriating artwork. And that eventually evolved into the idea that there are these movies that are based on the Transformers um, franchise. And I'm transforming these these films using various glitch and other techniques. And so like the first one I did was based on um, Alvin Lucia's I'm Standing in a Room. I just uh, re-recorded the first Transformers movie over and over again, burned it to a disc, played it back in, through a camera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it was beautiful. It was a... a I mean, it's not something I would project necessarily as, um, you know, come see this movie, but as an installation piece where people could come and sit, like people could recognize that they're like what movie it was if they were familiar with it, but they also would just sort of get enmeshed in the sort of ethereal aspect of the movie with all of its hard edges sort of blurred away and all of the sound kind of, you know, also kind of flattened out by this process. Um, And so I'm simultaneously appropriating an idea from another artist, a movie from a a corporate entity, and, and sort of, you know, again, the parody comes in very lightly in the idea that I'm transforming the Transformers movie. Um, and and some of the later ones, I started doing more glitch effects and and actually editing a little bit. Um, and, and so that was more, you know, back to my history as a, you know, commercial video editor. And, and I have a film undergrad degree from Bard. So I have, I have uh, a lot of influences in that regard. <laughs> Well, so Lee, in closing, one one of the things that I've al- always really liked and 
admired about your work is that it reflects a kind of sophisticated and kind of deep and I think generous reflection on the relationship between art and the social rules that regulate how we talk about the world. But for this program, like a lot of the listeners are lawyers, right? And so what what I'd really love for you to do is to just spend a minute, like talking a little bit about what you think lawyers and quote unquote people like people like people like me are missing when we talk about what people do when they do art and what they think about art and how they think about the process of creation and creative activity. Well, Ooh, that's a tough one because I don't know that many lawyers Uh, (laughs) and the ones I do tend to be the ones I listen to about, you know, like Lawrence Lessig, I think has, um, you know, that whole story that he has in free culture about the, I mean, it's, it's a, it's sort of the, the story about um, evolution of, of ideas around intellectual property and, and, and property in general, but like the idea of the, the farmers who, wanted to stop planes from flying over their farm. Um, I think, uh, I think what often gets missed in the general public about art making, I see a lot here in New Mexico because there's absolutely a very traditionalist vein in the art market here. That's about sort of figurative painting and, and craft, which I respect. But, um, but it definitely means there are a lot of folks who don't realize like the that that doing social commentary in art doesn't mean making political posters necessarily and uh it doesn't mean uh, being obvious about it. i people have the students have asked me when i've presented like the transformers work and i tell them you know i don't I know that you've probably been taught because I know I've seen the the school materials that were generated by the MPAA and others like that, that ideas are property and that you can't steal people's ideas and you shouldn't, and that it's a bad thing. And I say, fuck that. You, you should steal ideas. Ideas are stealing ideas is how ideas evolve into other things. I have one rule that I tell my students in so many words, just don't be an asshole. And you'll know if you're being an asshole, (laughs) Um, you know, if, if you're stealing and you're, and you're taking credit and earning money off of something that you, that you literally stole from somebody else. Well, that's, that's theft. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, uh, yeah be be flattered that somebody thought your idea was good enough to to do and and furthermore one thing i tell my students all the time is you know i'm sorry that they also had the same idea that you did but you didn't make that idea and they did if you don't like what they did make your own version of it and then they'll complain that you know whatever but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I think that there are a lot of assumptions made around 
intellectual property in particular um, that I see that really don't take into account the 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 genuine um, value that comes from people taking other people. You know, my my candle is not dimmed by lighting yours. I I think that's a that's a key idea that. Um, frankly, our version of capitalism just doesn't allow for. <gasps> yeah. Awesome. Well, let's leave it with Jefferson's taper then. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Lee. It was great talking to you and um, I hope we can hang out again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me. And uh, I, I shared with um, Maybell uh, a mezcal ice cream recipe that I will be trying very soon. And, and I hope uh, to hear that, that you guys might try at some point. whatever they wanted and never worried about copyright. There's been a long tradition of taking things. How can he do this? In modern art. How can someone take something so blatantly? In modern art. Appropriate it, whatever you want to call it. And uh, relocating and say it's okay to do that because it's too expensive but they were asking for like ridiculous amounts of percentage of uh-huh. royalties and all that sort of thing how can we do this because it's too expensive in the end they realized that the tone of it they didn't like it so they didn't want us to use it however much we paid them in royalties Hello, Dead Dog Records. And I get a little bit riled when I see people say that their particular dissatisfaction with the artistic behavior of an act entitles them to, quote, mutilate the songs as much as possible, unquote. I'm sorry, this is the result of people's hard work. This is the result of creative effort. And if you have any respect for the creative act, you must respect copyright. You must respect the role of the creator. I want to make a record. I really don't care about the artistic goals of your project. I want to make a record. And if you have any respect for the creative act, you must respect copyright. You must respect copyright. You must respect copyright. 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 And you must respect the role of the creator. I want to make a record. I really don't care about the artistic goals of your project. I want to make a record. And you must respect the role of the creator. I really don't care about the artistic goals of your project. Keep your evenings free, because I'm making that record. Sue everybody! Well, it was inevitable that the matter would wind up in court. 
Thank you. 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 Thank you.